and welcome to this week's Roundtable edition of The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Last week, I agreed to eat some insects in the Bunker studio for a special edition on the joys of munching on bugs. We called it BuzzFeed, only for a listener to inform me that Brexit is putting Britain's entire insect farming industry in jeopardy. Stock up on your salt and vinegar crickets now, that's my advice. On the show this week, we'll be asking how Gavin Williamson got where he is today and whether he will now go away. Lorry driver and transport expert Tom Reddy will be talking about what's causing the food shortages and price rises in shops. And as Emma Raducanu is welcomed into the fold of British sporting gods, we'll discuss who gets to join that particular Mount Olympus. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us again. We hope you're enjoying the podcasts. You can help spread the word about The Bunker by forwarding the episode link to three like-minded friends. It's super easy. The share button is right there on your app. And in case you missed it, please check out The Culture Bunker. The first episode came out last Saturday and we'll be releasing new episodes every weekend covering music, TV, film, books and more. Now let's meet the panel. First up, welcome back to Times radio host and former Labour staffer, Aisha Hazarika. Hello. Aisha, Friday saw the first Labour lead in a national poll since January, with the Tories dropping five points after the national insurance rise was announced. Is this just one poll or is it the start of a trend? Well, it's a very, very good question. I I think it's too early to tell. I think the question is, what is Keir Starmer, how is Keir Starmer going to capitalise on this? It's definitely a feeling of quite a lot of anger about this tax rise, the fact that a lot of people who are already struggling a lot are going to have to pay more, particularly with this um, uplift in universal credit about to be cancelled as well. But the question that a lot of people are still not hearing or, or the questions people are asking of the Labour Party and they're not hearing is, well, what would you do? And I do think that until we get a bit more flesh on the bone, it's still going to be tough for Labour. But this does provide Keir Starmer, I think, with a good opportunity going into conference you know all eyes are going to be on him in a way he gets to almost make a bit of a debut to the country again the conservatives are having a hard time but the question everybody just wants to know is look you know we do need a bit more from Labour we do need a bit more from Keir Starmer in terms of what uh, you know his vision is for the country. Yeah there was something in the Sunday papers about uh, a tax on landlords to pay for social care and I thought yeah that's great but you needed to say that a week ago not not today. It seems to have taken a tax rise for public opinion to shift. Was it the wrong tax or any tax that people are annoyed about? It's a good question because I think, you know, on the whole, I think people kind of swither a lot on the idea of tax rises. People understand that all of these public services do need to be nourished from, you know, the the treasury coffers until it sort of affects them. I mean, it's very, very hard to find a tax that everybody's like, yeah, we're really happy about this tax. Um, You're always going to have one group of people who are like really, really, you know, pissed off. I think the thing about this, though, is that as we're just kind of looking at the T's and C's, the big worry that a lot of people have is that, you know, that the intention is noble to pay for social care. But the big question is, is social care actually going to see that much of this money because of all the pressures on the NHS? I've literally just got off the phone to a doctor before I came on the podcast and they were saying that, 
you know, things are really reaching crisis point. We're nowhere near winter yet. And it does feel that the NHS is lurching back into crisis. So I think nobody likes to to raise taxes. People are prepared to swallow it if it's for a good cause. But if if that cause may never see any of the the money, it's quite tough. Yes, Tory backbencher Marcus Fish wants you to get a rebate on your national insurance if you pay for your own social care insurance. I'm looking forward to private schools lobbying for an exemption like that. It would be uh, very popular, I'm sure. Also back on the bunker, we have writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Ros. It was the 20th anniversary of 9-11 at the weekend, of course. Where were you on that day? Um, I was working at ID magazine at the time and um, for a magazine they were sort of unusually online at that point I remember they were sort of on the internet very early everyone was sort of hooked up so it's the first disaster I really remember watching play out in real time like that um, but even with that you know the internet was starting to go down the news pages wouldn't refresh so we, we all sort of moved upstairs to this little flat that was upstairs from the office and watched the whole thing on a portable TV. And I was watching the BBC documentary at the weekend, uh, which is very good and sort of worth a watch. But something that really struck me, when they re-showed all the footage of the actual impact, which you don't actually see broadcast very often again these days, there was still just that really odd sense of unreality about the whole thing. I remember watching the first tower collapse and thinking, well, that's what damaged buildings do. So that would make sense and not really making that link that they were still full of people or, you know, what the size and the scale of them was because you just had nothing to reference the incident to in terms of context or scale. And I thought that still felt as fresh 20 years on as it did back then. Yeah, it was the sheer scale of it that was terrifying that you could kill so many people so quickly, I think. was. Well, and I remember also with being in the fashion magazines at the time because it was New York Fashion Week and this sort of realisation that went round that if you worked in style magazines, loads of people we knew were in New York because everyone had gone there for the fashion shows and, you know, not everyone was on mobile, cell phones were down and it was that sort of long afternoon of sort of piecing together, well, who was downtown, who was uptown, where are people, have they been accounted for? And it was, it just, it just very odd how vivid it all seemed. Our special guest this week is Tom Reddy, HGV driver of 15 years, transport consultant and lecturer in transport management. You can find him on Twitter at The Lorryist. Tom, thanks for joining us on The Bunker. Thanks very much for having me, Ross. It's a pleasure. Where were you on 9-11? Um, I'm going to give myself away here, but I was actually still in school. So I remember it happening and then travelling home from school, seeing my dad watching it on the TV and then just being glued to it for the rest of the day. Um, yeah, it was quite something. And um, having watched some of the documentaries that have been doing the rounds recently, Netflix particularly has got a really good one. Um, but yeah, a lot of the footage I, I think I had seen, but maybe forgotten. Uh, as Justin was saying, it is quite it's quite stark what you what you forget about, and the impact of that day it does seem kind of surreal now. Last weekend, the boss of the Food and Drink Federation warned that Britain was going to have permanent shortages. That doesn't mean we'd run out of food, he added, but we can't expect the kind of choice we were used to because just-in-time supply chains are over. To find out what's going on inside the industry, we spoke to CEO of Food and Drink Scotland, James Withers. Hi, I'm James Withers. I'm Chief Executive of Scotland Food and Drink, and we're the industry development body for the farming, fishing, food and drink sector across Scotland. The consequences of the drivers' shortages are going to be felt right through 
the agri-food supply chain. So on farms, farmers are struggling to get people to help with a harvest. You then need drivers to take that from farms into storage units. And we've got real uh, driver shortages being felt right across the supply chain. You then need people to be taking product from farms and putting them in packets ready for supermarket shelves. And then ultimately you need workers in supermarkets and you need them in restaurants and hotels to be able to make sure that product can then get to customers. So what we're starting to see uh, see is some of these supply chains that were already straining as a result of working through 18 months of a pandemic, of trying to adapt to Brexit, starting to really strain and break now. And that could mean the kind of gaps we've seen on some supermarket shelves get worse as we head towards Christmas. There's changes coming later on this year that potentially exacerbate the problems we've already got in the food supply chain. So as of the 1st of January this year, if you if your business was exporting products into the European Union, if you sold fish to buyers in France, you sold red meat to buyers in Spain or Scandinavia, you had all sorts of new paperwork and checks to get your product into the European Union. Up until now, though, there's been a complete free ride for European businesses selling into the UK. So if a product's come in the other direction over that English channel, there's been no checks, either documentation or physical checks at all. That's all scheduled to change on the 1st of October. And the pain that businesses here have felt selling into Europe is the pain that businesses in Europe are going to feel selling into us. And so the risk is that if we see any kind of disruption, even close to what we saw in January for us selling into Europe, it could be a massive problem in getting product into the country. Now, I'm not convinced border inspection posts are ready. To be honest with you, if I was a betting man, I'm not entirely convinced these checks are going to start on the 1st of October. They've been delayed once already. They may well get delayed again. And if that does happen, it will help in terms of that flow of food coming into the country. We won't add yet another potential risk into that, but it will continue this competitive disadvantage we've got where businesses in Europe can sell freely here, but it's really difficult for us to sell to them. I think there is a very real risk at Christmas. If you had a look at a graph as to what happens in terms of food sales in the UK, you would see that actually this time of year is a bit of a lull. The summer period, the schools aren't back in England yet, albeit they're about to go back. Um, and what happens in the rest of the year is sales rise and they rise and they rise. And you have this enormous spike at Christmas time. And we know all about it. We all do it. We stock our cupboards. We stock our fridges. We stock our freezers ahead of the big Christmas feast. The challenge is at the moment we've got gaps in supermarket shelves. If we add in two factors, one, that the amount of supplies of product both in retail and in warehouses is the lowest it has been since records began in 40 years. You add that with the second fact is that we have an annual spike in sales, then I'm not sure the food supply chain is going to be able to cope with it entirely. We're not talking about mass shortages here. So let's not press the total panic button and no one can really cancel Christmas, but it might be some of the products you normally rely on are just going to be a lot more difficult to get hold of. And this needs to be a real alarm bell now for government that don't cross your fingers and hope it'll be all right on the night. Don't just think this will magically disappear because it won't. We need to take some action now to try and at least alleviate a bit of the situation. Are you sure? I went into my Sainsbury's local a couple of months ago and there was no meat or fish at all. I mean, vegetarian Sainsbury's would undoubtedly have its supporters, but this is not, this is not something we were used to, at least until the panic buying at the start of the pandemic. But it's not just the shortages. The prices are going up too. You talked about universal credit earlier. What are the implications of all these price rises for the cut to universal credit? 
Well, I think people are really worried about how this is going to impact low-paid families who have actually got a, a triple, well, it's more than a triple whammy. They've got the cuts to universal credits. We're going to have increases in um, national insurance. We know that gas and electricity bills are, are going to go up as well. Uh, personal allowances have been frozen. So it's actually going to be a really, really difficult time for working people who, you know, it feels like a lot is being thrown at them at, at the moment. I mean, people are still very raw about Brexit. And even though we are seeing all of these things, it is amazing how even lots of news outlets don't ever want to really mention the B word when we're discussing these issues, whether it's um, shortages of lorry drivers or food shortages or, or whatever the consequences. I, I've really noticed that people are sort of quite reluctant to go there again. And you're just like going, go on, say it, say the B word, say the B word. And everyone's like, um, maybe it's just because like people just don't want to drive anymore. Like I don't, it's just, you know, so I, I think even though it's pretty obvious that this is a factor, people are still quite, sh- no one wants to sort of relitigate it. Tom, you wrote on Twitter that a couple of weeks ago, you arrived at work and discovered you've got a 40% pay increase. Where is all this money coming from and why isn't it helping to keep drivers? Uh, So in the short term, the larger companies are likely to be able to find that sort of money. The smaller ones aren't. Um, I I represent a lot of small hauliers and they simply can't compete on the price rises. So you lease this problem of of musical chairs where the experienced drivers just sort of chase around the best money for a while because they can do so. Um, But the margins in haulage are, are next to nothing if you look up you know, the, the top 100 haulage companies in the UK, they're all on 1%, 2% margin. So the costs have to be passed on. That's where we're seeing some of the price rises. And certainly the worst is yet to come on the, side, on the price rising side. The government has just relaxed and shortened the HGV driving test a bit to try to increase the number of drivers and the number of tests that they can fit in. How do you feel about that? I have mixed, I have mixed feelings about, about the issues with the tests. So the cynical side of me would say they've they've done that so they can make the statistics look right, as in they've reacted, they've done this thing, and it's been a great success because all these more tests have gone through. But there is a question about lowering of standards with with driving tests. They have it's not the first time the standards for the HDV driving tests have been lowered. Um, but you could argue some of what they've done makes sense. I.e., you can jump straight into an articulated lorry rather than going via a rigid lorry, which is the way you'd you've had to do it up to now. Um, but I do have concerns about about standards because they're not not the highest standards anyway, and we have to consider road safety. And what we accept in the industry is this drive towards road safety all the time. But when it suits the agenda, they can relax that through drivers' hours or through reduce changing the testing. And I I do have a problem with that because it goes against what what we're supposed to be doing in the industry. So mixed mixed feelings, but I, I still think it's not going to have the impact they expect it to. And you're getting a lot of older drivers retiring right now, aren't you? Yes, has always been the case. Um, as long as I've been in the industry 15 years or more, we've always heard about an older demographic of drivers on their way out of the industry. It was covered for in the mid-2000s by the influx of, of migrant workers. EU, um, extra countries joined the EU. We opened up our doors immediately to this extra labour. A lot of people forget that. And they filled the gaps very nicely for these older drivers retiring. But the average age in haulage is still late 50s. Even myself considered a fairly young driver by by comparison. But yes, we're just not replacing them. It's not a job people want to do anymore. And it hasn't been for a very long time. And nothing has really been done to, to address that. 
So what was it like driving during the pandemic? I mean, what was the impact that it had on moving goods apart from Brexit? What was the, the COVID's impact? So the main problem for drivers was access to facilities during COVID. The transport industry had to carry on. Suddenly we found ourselves to be key workers and the transport industry in general has a, a marvellous way of, of continuing and overcoming and it always does it very quietly. So things keep rolling. But the the issue for drivers was finding places to stop that were open, finding places to eat because um, you were still expected to do a full day's work, which is you know potentially 15 hours. So it was really quite challenging for for quite a while in terms of the industry itself in terms of making deliveries happen it was a lot, lot easier in many respects because the road systems were basically um, empty but yeah it was a challenging time for the drivers particularly ones living on the road full-time and you've stopped driving internationally haven't you I've stopped driving internationally yes yeah I've, I'm just on my way out now I've got a few shifts left over the next few weeks and then that's me out of the driving seat and why did you decide to do that I, I, I say because you have to give up too much. You have to give up too much of your private life, your personal life, your social life. Everything else in your life will suffer as a result of, of this job because of the amount of hours that, that are demanded. And it's very, very hard to, to find a balance. If you're working full time as a lorry driver, you will be expected to, to toe the line on, on the normal amount of hours. And that is always 12 hours plus per day with rest as little as nine hours per day. And it does take a toll. So I'm... I'm 36, but I'm I'm tired. Everything's aching. I feel a lot of pain in my all these sort of things that I shouldn't necessarily be feeling at my age. And, and hats off to the guys who are still at this in their late 50s and 60s. I'm just a bit done with it. Having I feel like I've done my time, and it, nothing is changing in terms of the actual conditions of the job. And I'm guessing that there are plenty of options that people can go to now because there are lots of jobs around. Wages are going up. So there isn't too much of a problem if you do leave the industry and go elsewhere. What do ex-lorry drivers tend to do? Well, it's a very good point because it is a problem in so much as we're not qualified to do anything else. And it's why a lot of lorry drivers find themselves in the position they find themselves in. And then they hit this glass ceiling, but reasonably well paid one. So you, you make your choice. Do you carry on doing the well paid job that may not be very good for you you try and find something else but retraining is very very hard because traditionally this was not a job people got into because they were qualified to do anything else it was sort of school leavers early school leavers like myself and and a bit of a so it's had an image problem for such a long time but it's very very hard to go and to go and do other things after you've worked in haulage and you wrote that the eastern european drivers were quietly keeping the uk industry moving why do you think that they were willing to do the lorry driver's job, but UK workers aren't? Is it purely a matter of wages? It's not a matter of wages, no. I mean, it's a very important factor, the money. We all go to work for money. But there's a different work ethic. And I'm not taking anything away from UK drivers. We do work really, really hard. But you can ask an Eastern European driver, for example, to do something which they would take in their stride where a UK driver might push back. And I see this and have done for, for years and years. We forget so easily that in living memory, a lot of these Eastern European countries were coming out of communism as most recently as 1989. They have a different idea of what life is to be difficult or to struggle with life or conditions to be hard. In the UK, we have a very different and we have such short memories. And it always makes me sad when when we try and cover this. Because, But the work ethic of Eastern Europeans is just so hard. They will work days and days and days and days and, and as much hours as you can throw at them and they, they won't bat an eyelid. And so it, some of that has does go some way because they just wanted to earn money and they were quite happy to do what was required. 
Uh, and there is a different in, difference in work ethic and it does fascinate me. Do you think people have really grasped the extent of the problem yet? I mean, do you think there might potentially be stockpiling ahead of Christmas or might there not be stockpiling because people don't get how difficult it's going to be? I don't think we do, but I always, always, always exercise massive caution when talking about things like shortages of products because it does lead to this situation we saw in the peak of the COVID pandemic with panic buying. Because of the way we work, you know, everything just in time deliveries. So supermarket knows exactly what you're going to buy for, you know, the last 40 years they have data on expected demand. And so they're very, very good at getting in what's needed but nothing that's going to go to waste in theory. And so when people panic by it, it pushes all this onto the next person in line who's not going to get what they want. So I always advise caution, but I don't think we, we quite grasp the scale of the problem. We're beginning to see empty shelves now. And as I mentioned, the transport industry does have a wonderful way of, of overcoming. We will figure out how to do it. We always do. And in my 15 years, I've always seen that. And it, it does always impress me. The past 18 months have been really quite humbling and I felt very grateful to be part of that that chain. Significant problems are, well, we're seeing the beginning of them now, and I, I hope it's not going to get significantly worse, but we're definitely going to see prices rise, and we're definitely going to see fewer fewer ranges. We've lost a lot of transport capacity with the driver shortage, but with the loss of ex, um, non-UK hauliers doing their part. So it, it's all knocking on, unfortunately. But yeah, people very rarely see the scale of it until it hits them on the shelves. Moving on, and last week saw yet another clangor from hapless Education Secretary Gavin Williamson. The Education Secretary managed to confuse two black sports stars, mistaking England rugby player Maro Itoje for England footballer and school meals campaigner Marcus Rashford. He was also telling university heads to get back to in-person teaching, on a Zoom. The question of how someone of Williamson's competence and integrity came to be responsible for the education of millions of British children and students is one we felt we should try to answer this week. Aisha, many teachers weren't impressed by the reforms that Michael Gove put in place when he was in charge of education. There were academies, there was a great deal of more grammar teaching at primary level, for example. What approach have the Conservatives taken to education since 2010? Well, I mean, I always remember when the Conservatives came in, one of the first things they did was sort of roll back on what was a very successful um, building schools for the future programme. And we then had Michael Gove. I also really remember, and I you know, know a lot of people in the, the, the music sector and, and creative industries, etc. There was quite a kind of a mantra which was like the sort of these creative subjects were not that important it was all about these core subjects um you see a lot of creativity being squeezed out of the the curriculum so it hasn't been a, a great you know it hasn't been a great record although t- to be fair i mean whatever hue of education secretary there is they never have a particularly great relationship with teachers and the teaching unions, and that was definitely true of the Labour Party. But it does feel that education, which is so important, particularly to this levelling up mantra that Boris Johnson has, and levelling up in education is absolutely the right thing to be to be doing. It does feel weird to have your most incompetent human being like on the planet in charge of education. That does seem quite counterintuitive. Who was the last good education secretary? I mean, you mentioned that they you know, they often have a bad relationship with teaching unions, but is there one that we can look back on and say, yeah, they did a decent job? 
Well, I'm always struck at, at the moment in an era where nobody resigns unless they literally get caught in a Benny Hill type sort of situation, like we saw with Matt Hancock. I was really struck by a, a woman called Estelle Morris, who was in the education department. And she actually was doing, I think, a pretty good job. She resigned because she didn't think she was doing a, a good job. She sort of just was like, I don't think I'm doing a good enough job and I'm, I'm going to sort of go. And I'm just always struck by her kind of humility. And she was actually like a really good politician. She was very diligent. She cared very deeply compared to what we have at the moment. I think the problem is that with education, there's always a desire to somehow go to war with teachers and demonise teachers. And we talk a lot about the crisis of morale in the health service at the moment with uh, doctors and nurses being at breaking point. But I think that is really true of teachers as well, particularly through the pandemic. And I think a lot of teachers do feel that, particularly with recent um, education secretaries, it's very easy for them to be made the the scapegoat, like it's sort of their fault they haven't worked hard enough when in fact they've really, you know, been going above and and beyond. And there's a huge rate of dropout at the moment from teachers as well. I mean, it is something to keep a real eye on. I think we may well have a bit of a crisis in the teaching profession pretty soon when we actually need really good teachers more than ever. So Williamson has been in the role since Boris Johnson became PM, and that was July 2019. Given all the fiascos, the results, the fiasco, A-levels, mistakes over the opening and closing of schools, which has been a nightmare, why hasn't he been sacked yet? <laughs> it's a, it's very, a million very dollar question, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it is. It is. It's a, mil- it's a million lira question. And I think I have some of the answer. I've been pondering this question deeply, Roz. And I think there's a number of reasons. <laughs> First of all, there, there, are, there are reports. So Gavin Williamson was the, the chief whip. And apparently, Gavin Williamson does have box office dirt on the Prime Minister and the inner workings of government. And he has said, I think at the time when they were trying to sort of move him from being Defence Secretary, this is after he famously told Putin to sort of go away and shut up, like that'll do it. And he did say, look, if you if you get rid of me, I'm going to sing like a, a canary. And so I think that there's definitely worries about that. But you also have to think about Boris Johnson. It kind of suits Boris Johnson to have somebody who is not going to slag him off and and keep quiet about him and somebody who's quite incompetent because what Boris Johnson doesn't seem to like is lots of clever, good, competent people around him. He wants people, he puts sort of loyalty or kind of silence in terms of criticising him way above competence and you know it's quite a distraction from Boris Johnson to have somebody as just you know gaff prone and and laughable as as Gavin Williamson there I mean I did feel slightly sorry for Gavin Williamson about mixing up these two people because I think a lot of people confuse Gavin Williamson for Frank Spencer like on a regular basis so you know these things can happen. (laughs) Justin let's look back at Williamson's earlier career He was 45 now, and before he went into Parliament, he worked as the managing director of a fireplace manufacturer called Elgin & Hall, and he worked for an architectural design firm as well. He was elected MP for South Staffordshire in 2010, and then he became David Cameron's private parliamentary secretary in October of 2013. 
Then he moved on to be Theresa May's parliamentary campaign manager during the 2016 leadership race and then her chief whip. What sort of person do you need to be in order to be chief whip? And does it you know, require keeping a whip on your desk, for example? It's a very odd position because it's it's obviously very high profile in terms of its importance within the party, but then it's somewhat shadowy in the sense that you know, you're prohibited from speaking in Parliament. You know, to the wider public, it's often not clear what you're doing. There's a lot of sort of arm twisting behind behind closed doors. Um, so nothing new there, then, basically. Well, nothing <laughs> straight out of the new statesman, isn't it? But it's um, but it seems unfortunately then because of that to lend itself to this idea that it's a role for some sort of Machiavellian enforcer. And so unfortunately, it's the kind of role that would then be of interest to the kind of dismal person who would fancy themselves as a Machiavellian enforcer. Feels on those, you know, sort of self-style Brexit hard man type nicknames. So I think there's that sort of him. But I think, I mean, there's obviously the public persona of him, which is that he's woefully out of his depth and laughably inept. But I think one thing that does come through when you read, you know, accounts of him and profiles of him is, you know, he was previously Cameron's PPS from 2013 to 16. It was a very good new statesman profile of him in 2017 that bears uh, sort of rereading where Giles Kenningham, who was Cameron's former head of political press, said he understands the heartbeat of the party. He has a forensic knowledge of what's going on. He puts in the work in the tea room in the bars. He knows everyone. Now, that sounds like a fairly basic entry-level thing that you'd be able to do in any job if you were a normal functioning human being. But within the modern Conservative Party, he's had this succession of people, so sort of like Theresa May when he was running her campaign, and I think in a different way now, Boris Johnson, people who are fairly inept around other people and when it comes to networking. And I think while there is, you know, this idea that he's got this sort of like treasure chest full of dirt on his colleagues... I think also the fact that he has clearly put the hours in and, you know, is very clubbable. He knows everyone. He speaks to people. He puts the time in and does the spade work to build those relationships is probably a very underrated skill within that party and the cohort of quite honestly weirdos that make it up at the moment. And, you know, and to, again, to his credit, when he was whip, it suggests that for that job, he was actually pretty good. You know, he pushed through most votes at a time of very slim majorities and with a very shaky leader. And if it took someone being performatively aggressive and having a pet spider called Kronos on their desk to get those votes through, then so be it, I guess. So we should maybe conclude that he's really good at the politics of the job, but he's absolutely rubbish at running a department. That might be fair. Yeah, I think that that would probably be a fair assessment. And again, it's that... It's a symptom of that sort of culture of promotion that you have within jobs. So everyone assumes that you should always be moving up the ladder when actually sometimes you've just found your natural level. And it may be that he was actually pretty good as a backroom figure. He seemed absolutely terrible out front. You know, I mean, things like, I mean, we touched on it earlier, the, the, uh, the thing when he was sacked over the, uh, the Huawei incident and, you know, the possible leak of information. I mean, let's, that should have been a career ending incident. You know, that wasn't a small thing, but to Aisha's point, we are now operating in an environment where nothing appears to be a sackable offence unless it involves goosing one of your colleagues in front of some CCTV. And, you know, and again, to sound like a stuck record, we go back to Brexit and the fact that for an entire cohort of politicians here, the formative political campaign of their lives so far has been one that was predicated on the idea that rules are for suckers and anything goes as long as you get the right result. 
And that's unfortunately the environment he's operating within now. And I think in those terms, when you say we know how hasn't he been sacked yet, it's made more a question of like, well, why would he have been? So there are rumours of a reshuffle that have been circulating, though to be fair, they have been circulating for many, many weeks now, if not months. And the most recent Conservative Home Cabinet League table puts Williamson in last place. He's got a net satisfaction of minus 53.5%, which is perhaps an all-time low. I haven't checked, but that does sound very low. Is he bound to go you know, back into the shadows where perhaps he will be more useful, do you think, Aisha? Well, there are rumours that he may well, it's cited as a demotion, which I think is actually terrible, but there, there's um, lots of rumours swirling about that he could become the new leader of the House of Commons. That's a role that Jacob Rees-Mogg is doing. Now, the role of leader of the House of Commons is actually a very important role because you are in the chamber a lot. The leader of the House almost has to take business questions, which is a bit like a mini prime minister's questions. When I worked for Harriet Harman and was advising her when she was leader of the house, it's a job where you need to be completely briefed. It is like doing prime minister's questions. You need to be briefed across every single department. You can get asked any question. You also have to have quite good relations. You have to be quite well respected by MPs across the house. And also you have to have some basic oratory skills as well. And I do actually feel if he does get moved to that position, it would be a real shame. That job should be done by somebody who first of all can actually speak properly. I think that is like quite important and who does actually command some kind of respect. But the problem for Boris Johnson is because he is in this very weird position where in many ways he's very, very strong, he has got this big majority, things do feel quite fragile for him at the moment because he's fighting a lot of wars on a lot of fronts. So in any other world, he and his team would just say, Gavin Williamson, you're doing a pants job, you're getting out the sort of cabinet and just be done with it. You know, he is meant to be a strong leader. But because he will be nervous and they will be nervous about what dirt Gavin Williamson has, and, and we know he's quite ruthless and, and he, he he does brief a lot and he leaks a lot. We know that from the, the Huawei um, stuff. They are too weak to demote him, which is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, in terms of who might replace him, I mean, Nick Gibb has done you know quite a solid job as the number two in the education department for a long time. Nick Gibb, of course, is the brother of Robbie Gibb, who did used to work for Theresa May, who is now quite a big head honcho at the, at the BBC, very influential in terms of sort of right-wing politics and as being a sort of conservative influencer. So many people will be hoping that Nick Gibb gets promoted because he is seen as quite a, a credible figure. He does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of going out and doing sort of policy stuff. But who knows, it may well be somebody who's got no clue about the brief. In fact, probably will be somebody that has no clue about the brief at all. Can I make a suggestion for Williams's future? Yeah, of course. Well, I, I think now that the government essentially seems to be this sort of like medieval court, perhaps just dressing him in fool's motley and having him as the, uh, the sort of court fool dancing around, generally entertaining people, I think would maybe be a better uh, deployment of him. (laughs) Yeah, it's tempting. Now, in America, a huge constitutional battle is taking place over the issue of abortion. The state of Texas has passed a new law which bans terminations after six weeks, and in an emergency ruling, it was upheld by the Supreme Court. The US government is now planning to sue Texas on the grounds that a ban is unconstitutional. 
To make sense of it all, we spoke to Joanna Walters, an editor and reporter for The Guardian, based in New York City. Hi, I'm Joanna Walters. I'm a news editor and reporter with The Guardian, and I'm based in New York. Texas introduced a new anti-abortion law uh, last week, which has just been signed into law by the governor of Texas, the Republican governor, Greg Abbott. And basically, it bans almost all abortions after just six weeks of pregnancy. There's no exceptions made for pregnancies resulting from either rape or incest. I think there are some provisions for if the life of the mother is threatened. But it basically bans almost all abortions in the state, at least eight out of ten Abortions in Texas are performed after six weeks of pregnancy. At six weeks, most women don't even, many women don't even know that they're pregnant. And what's different about this law as well, apart from it being very early, is that it empowers the general public to enforce the law. This is how they're getting around legal challenges, is that instead of the authorities enforcing the law, the public is invited to report and file lawsuits against anyone providing abortion services or anybody deemed to be in any way aiding a woman to get an abortion. So that could be anything from giving somebody a lift to the clinic, raising funds to help women get such health services, as well as the actual provider itself. The person that it doesn't target is the actual woman herself. That's why it's being roundly condemned by pro-choice people as promoting vigilante law enforcement. Roe v. Wade was the landmark 1973 ruling by the Supreme Court that led the way to abortion being legalized across the nation for the first time in America. And there have been many challenges to that ruling since. It was reaffirmed uh, a few years later in a similar case. And that ruling has stood the test of time since 1973. It doesn't allow any and all abortions. It gives the woman a right to seek an abortion and have an abortion up until the point where it's deemed the fetus can survive outside the womb, which is approximately 24 weeks typically. And so that landmark ruling legalized abortion across the nation. And that's stood until now and still stands But among the pro-choice lobby, there are very deep fears that it's hanging by a thread at this point. People have said it's basically a husk at this point because it's been so hollowed out by states undermining the various rights and whittling away and hoping ultimately to get it overturned in the Supreme Court. It's never been overturned, but there's another big landmark case coming up in the full season of the Supreme Court this autumn a legal challenge out of Mississippi on a similarly very restrictive piece of law. And if that goes against, then basically Roe v. Wade is gone. Aisha, as we just heard, the Conservative majority on the Supreme Court have affirmed the anti-abortion law passed in Texas. Are other states likely to follow, do you think? I think there is a real concern that other states will follow and there will start to be this rowing back on abortion rights. I think one of the things that we forget is how divided America is on on these kinds of, of issues. And, you know, we all breathed this huge sigh of relief when, when Joe Biden won, but the Supreme Court is, of course, very much has the sort of shadow or the ghost of Donald Trump uh, across it. And it is ultra-conservative now in its views. And it's now 
you know, it's contested ground, you know, rule versus weed is contested ground, which it feels just unbelievable and incredulous to to say that now in 2021 that this huge um battleground is is opening up and i think what's very troubling for a lot of watchers of american politics is that there has been this sort of weakening of joe biden because of how things ended in afghanistan we have got these midterm elections which will be upon us very very quickly and in america more than anywhere else these kinds of culture wars, you know, have much more traction than, than they do here. So I think people are very, very worried about this. Lots of, you know, women journalists are writing a lot about this in America and saying that they are worried that other states may follow suit. Justin, Texas has been solidly Republican for a long time, but there are demographic changes that mean the state is moving towards the Democrats. Could this issue be the one which flips it blue, do you think? Possibly. Um, I mean, I'm conscious of I don't want to sound sort of overly Pollyanna-ish. I think, you know, as the Joanna Walter said on the insert there, I think this is, you know, incredibly grim news for women's rights particularly and, you know, civil society in general. But there's been some very interesting commentary in the last week around this from people who are pretty deep in the weeds of Republican politics. So David Frum, who was George W. Bush's speechwriter, had a very interesting piece in The Atlantic last week, essentially saying that for the last few decades, Republicans have used abortion as what he called a one-way option, where they can essentially use rhetoric around it as a free shot in election campaigns, safe in the knowledge that they wouldn't actually have to do anything. And he said, um, you know, pre-Texas, opposition to abortion offered Republican politicians a lucrative, no-risk political option. They could use pro-life rhetoric to win support from socially conservative voters who disliked economic policy and paid little price for it with less socially conservative voters who counted on the courts to protect abortion rights for them. So essentially, they could be quite performative around it. Now, that has very likely changed drastically. And he points out that Republicans always do best in votes when turnout is low, voters are apathetic and broadly feel quite comfortable. And he was saying essentially they're about to get this shock that for the first time since the 70s, they're going to have a very mobilised opposition that also regards abortion as issue number one in state and local politics. And it's going to turn every vote essentially into a referendum of this. And he says, you know, text Republicans have basically just bet their political future in a rapidly diversifying and urbanising state on this gambit. Um, Bill Crystal, former editor of the Weekly Standard, made a similar point on the Bulwark podcast last week. And the thing is, we always think of Texas as being solidly Republican, but it is in play. Now, Ted Cruz only beat Beto O'Rourke by 2.6% in 2018. And the Democrats are very specifically targeting it, not just in the light of the abortion ruling, but they were already going at it um, off the back of the winter weather crisis, you might remember, which swept through Houston earlier in the year, was one where Ted Cruz famously was caught, you know, fleeing town and going to Cancun. So they see it as being something they can target. And Hudson Kavanaugh, who's an academic, did a review of the Dems for the 2020 election of why they lost Texas. And he concluded that their problem wasn't a lack of voters, but it was primarily a failure to reach and register them, especially in rural areas. So that's a very surmountable issue. And I think, you know, there's a hope that this may have just given the campaign the motivation that it required. As Joanna said, a particularly unusual thing and terrible thing about this law is that it allows any citizen to launch a civil action against anyone who facilitates an abortion. That could be doctors or nurses or even potentially a taxi driver who drives the woman to the clinic though not the woman herself. And there's a $10,000 bounty if you win that civil action. What kind of, I mean, this is, this is almost 
this is extraordinary to me that the state can, if you like, outsource the work of enforcing this law to the civil courts and to anyone who takes it upon themselves to sue in this way. Is this pretty much unprecedented? How did yeah, either of you, please just talk to me about this because I was I was just blown away by it. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's appalling. I mean, I think it remains to be seen how it will play out in the courts. As um, as you mentioned, the Biden government is currently suing Texas over the constitutional legality. But aside from that technicality, as you say, it's this entire image of financially inducing citizens to spy on and report their neighbours. I mean, it feels like something out of Stasi run East Germany. I mean, one thing I did think was interesting was I think Uber and Lyft, the car share apps, have both said they will automatically cover the legal fees and any fines induced by drivers who get caught up in this. So I think it'll be interesting to see how businesses pushing back on this may snarl up the process in some way. But I I agree that I think it's just an unalloyed horror that they're inducing people to do this. It's disgusting. And it's one of those things which is so pernicious because it's so divisive and it is pitting people against each other. And it's the sort of symbolism of literally inducing with a big pot of money, like every bit of society to sort of snitch on a woman doing something to her own body and to snitch on anybody that's trying to help her. But sadly, this is not unprecedented, Ross, because we do know that hardline authoritarian regimes in Europe, for example, have been looking at uh, punishing anybody who helps refugees. Let's not forget the sort of genesis of the hostile environment was about people reporting immigrants to to the authorities if they felt that they didn't have their sort of correct papers. So sadly, this is not a new weapon uh, in terms of sort of dividing uh, communities, but this does feel just incredibly, incredibly depressing, particularly at a time when we in the West, and absolutely this includes America, have been looking on with horror at what lies ahead for Afghan women in, you know, in terms of the the Taliban. And we're saying, oh, they're going to have no agency and their rights are going to be rolled back. And then hang on a minute, look what's happening in the so-called world and land of the free. It is absolutely disgusting. The one thing I did take some heart in was the story about um, the TikTok users and young coders who had drummed up very quickly um, software patches, which are robo-calling in thousands of fake tips to the anti-abortion websites, um, primarily reporting Republican politicians from Texas as having been involved in this. So uh, once again, I, you know, hopefully the uh, the young people may save us on this one. Finally, 18-year-old Emma Raducanu is now a bona fide national hero after she won the US Open on Saturday. But not every sports person achieves that kind of adoration, and some of them make it only to do an Icarus and fall from grace. Justin, who would you rank as a sporting hero? It's a trick on because it can't just be someone who's exceptionally good at what they do. It has to be the way they do it, that kind of flair, grace, a sense of struggle. I mean, for me, I think in pure sporting terms, it's that entire cohort of East African distance runners at the moment. Tyrannish Dibaba from Ethiopia at London 2012. Eliud Kipchoge, I think, is the main one at the moment. He's, you know, come the closest to going below two hours in the marathon. And there's something just utterly transcendent about watching his geniuses, especially as a runner myself, plodding around at less than half the speed that they can do. <laughs> Aisha, who do you rate? 
Well, I'm not really very into sport, as everybody uh, famously uh, knows, but I was very moved by the whole Euros stuff over the, the summer. And even though I know he's not a sort of sporting star right now, but I do think what Gareth Southgate created and what he created in that team with all of those amazing young players, their talent, their camaraderie, but also the camaraderie off the pitch as well. And the fact that these were all amazing young men who were not afraid to speak out about causes that meant a lot to them. They were not scared about being labelled political correctness, gone mad and, you know, woke and all of that sort of stuff. So I still think Gareth Southgate should be Prime Minister. That is still my... um... (laughs) We had a great discussion about Gareth Southgate about a couple of months ago, didn't we? We, we, I still still live, that's the dream, that's the dream, Ros. (laughs) Tom, what about you? Who do you rate? So I'm um, now you've mentioned Gareth Southgate. I am a, a huge fan, and it's just I find it quite interesting how you know in 1996, if you'd have asked me about Gareth Southgate, <laughs> we lost to Germany on my birthday, and I was absolutely devastated. And if you'd have my hero back then would have been would have been David Seaman, but to talk to like modern day, I'm really impressed with Marcus Rashford, what he does, how he uses his platform to kind of attract attention in the right ways. I just I just think that is fantastic, and I wish we had more kind of leadership characters like Gareth Southgate and Marcus Rashford, who who kind of set an example like that, because so many of them could and so few of them do. Does it make a difference whether you play in a team or alone? Because in tennis, for example, we get to watch an individual so closely, sometimes for hours. But of course, when you're in a team, you don't get that kind of scrutiny. Do people who are in a team lose out in our estimation, do you think? I think it's the focus on the individual that builds that relationship with you as a watcher. I mean, even when it's part of a great team, I think it's it just, it's hard to build that sense of intensity when you're talking about these really heroic figures. And I, I think the nature of what we look for in them is always someone kind of rising above the pack. So I think, you know, even, you know, you're talking about someone like Beckham or something, you know, he was obviously part of an absolutely brilliant team. But I think even within that, he was seen as being you know, a level up or someone like Cantona that he played in those teams. So I think it's, I think it's harder for people to feel that way about an entire team. I also think as well, there is still a hierarchy of sports that we, we really care about. We really care about football. We really care about um, tennis where there is like a lot of money. I do always feel very moved by the Olympians, many of whom, you know, we don't, we didn't really know anything about them until the, go off to the Olympic Games and they do brilliantly. And then you find out these stories that they've actually been sort of ordinary people with extraordinary talent. They've been sort of working a a job until quite recently, but getting up at like four in the morning to train every day. I always find like their stories really inspiring. And also the parents of those like Olympians as well, who basically get up and drive their kids off and they're their sort of, you know, unofficial coach. I think there's a lot of people in sport who do brilliant stuff that just never, ever get the look in because they're not associated with what we see as very glamorous sports. And I think also it's, it's important to remember that the people at the public regard as heroes, it can often be quite detached from their actual material success. So, I mean, there was a brilliant film on the BBC a couple of months ago called Gods of Snooker. And the thing which came out really strongly in that was that the figure that the public idolised or figures, it wasn't Steve Davis with this sort of metronomic success. It was Jimmy White and Alex Higgins. 
And it was a great line in that where someone said about Higgins, he said, you know, he was the player who made the public love the sport, but the sport didn't love him. And he had this sort of like mercurial, sort of unmanageable quality. And I don't know whether that's also the case in other countries, but I think certainly over here, we've always had that sort of infatuation with these characters like him, Jimmy White, George Best, you know, these people where, you know, Frank Worthington and people going back further, where they had that sort of light, you know, natural ability, but there was something sort of undisciplined and untamed about them that often meant that they didn't achieve what they perhaps should have done as players, but we loved them all the more for it. I've been fascinated by the diving during the Olympics because you've got this this remarkable thing where you have intense scrutiny on someone, someone's face and for about 10 seconds before they dive. And then, of course, when they're diving, it's also fast and you don't see their expression or anything like that. But you get this remarkably, just, just these remarkable ability to scrutinise what the, and try and guess what they're thinking and feeling in that moment. And I, maybe it's that's why I like, I really admire Tom Daly. And his, it's just the pressure is on at that moment and you really feel the pressure. And also his knitting was very good. <laughs> his knitting is really sweet as well, yeah. <laughs> I think there's something you really got from, I was watching Tom Daly and also with uh, Simone Biles when she stepped back during the first part of the tournament. And because these people are so preternaturally gifted and they make it look so effortless, you suddenly realised with, Biles, when she stepped back, you go, these people in those particular disciplines are doing a sport where they could quite conceivably die every single time they step up and do a move. And I just, I cannot conceive of operating under that sort of pressure. It's absolutely insane. I literally pulled a muscle putting a pair of tights on the other day. So I'm just like, I kind of just, I just, it is just amazing. And also, I think it's so great to see this generation of sports hero and sports star who who do have the confidence to say, you know what, I do need to look after my mental health. I need to look after my physical health. I need to take a little bit of, of time out. Um, I mean, Ed, Emma Raducanu, you know, had her own issues at, at Wimbledon. I think that's an amazing step forward in terms of progress. You know, it's so good that these you know younger sports stars are saying to the world look we're not machines we're human beings and like every human being we do have our moments when we might be overwhelmed we might have mental health issues and and we need to take some time back we need to step away from this for, 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 for a while and I think that's an amazing brilliant brilliant development. I was looking back at BBC Sports Personalities of the Year and it's striking how women haven't got a look in for years. The last time a woman won BBC Sports Personality of the Year was 2006, and that was Zara Phillips. Is it just that women are not as good at playing the media game? Why, why do we... I mean, last person who won, I think, was Lewis Hamilton. I don't even consider Formula One a sport myself, so... <laughs> but... <laughs> I think it's just, you know, I think, Ros, I'm afraid it's good old-fashioned structural sexism. And the patriarchy, I hate to say it, women's sports, it's only recently that, you know, women's sports is coming anywhere near, and we're not even anywhere near parity yet, but in terms of coverage, exposure, championship fees, how much they get paid, their sponsorship deals, you know, the amount of management attention they get. I mean, women's sport has been treated as a sort of second class um, thing for such a long time. One of the things I thought was really interesting 
at the um, at the tennis was that you had all these amazing you know female tennis players like Billie Jean King and who who really you know paved the way for for the modern game and when um, Emma Raducanu won the um, the the sports commentator announced how much she won it's an absolute eye watering amount of money and lots of people on social media of course were like oh it's terrible you know she's got all this money and terrible but in a way what I thought was astonishing was hang on a minute remember this is a game where women were completely discriminated against in terms of of money in terms of prize money so good on her for like um winning that that amount of money i mean if she doesn't win it this year it will just be an i want a judge-led inquiry if she does not win that this year (laughs) i I hope it is changing as well because i mean i think to Aisha's point, I think there was always a perception that the things we rewarded in our sort of public sports figures was, you know, sort of physicality, aggression, that competitive edge. And there was this idea that they were more stereotypically male traits. But I think looking now at the women who've dominated their sports over the past decade, so, you know, I mentioned Simone Biles, you know, the Williams sisters, Paula Radcliffe, people like Helen Abiri and uh, Sifan Hassan in the distance running at the moment – that's just blown that idea out of the water. I mean, I don't think anyone serious could imagine, could look at these people and imagine they were in any way lesser athletes or less deserving of public attention and public affection in some way. So I really hope that is and has changed now. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker. And as usual, it's time for Escape Routes. What are the TV, films, music, books, miscellaneous that are taking our panellists' minds away from the nerve-wracking world of politics? Aisha, what have you been up to? Well, I've just moved house. So my escape routes have just been like trying to locate like my pants in various boxes like across the house and like unpacking boxes and just doing so much like terribly boring house admin which it seems to be sort of like never ending at the moment I'm actually it's a miracle that my wi-fi is up and running and I'm able to do this podcast but I have managed to sneak in a wee bit of a treat and that treat for me has been white lotus which was I thought absolutely sensational. I think it's one of the best things I've seen on television for a long, long time. It was so sharp and so satirical, but also incredibly funny as well and very dark. I just absolutely loved it. Justin, how about you? Uh, My very overly literal escape route was actually going on holiday. Um, So I went to Ireland last week for the week to see my family. It was absolutely stunning. We were right over in the very, very southwest of Cork. It was jaw-droppingly beautiful, freezing cold, uh, swimming in the Atlantic one day. I went up to the Mizzenhead signal station. Um, I just, I couldn't recommend it enough um also it was noticeable how incredibly seriously people were still taking covid it was the full you know masks and shops food and drink outdoors nobody being a performative dickhead about their freedoms being infringed on um it really was a great trip so i would say to everyone on behalf of the irish tourist board go as soon as you can yeah i found the same in france it's a completely different attitude there at the moment tom what have you been up to um, well, I can second Justin, having been to Ireland a couple of weeks ago. Um, my family's Irish. I'm actually a citizen. So um, I was meeting my new partner's family. So not at all nerve wracking, but yeah, what a stark difference it was to see how, how where they are, you know, six months behind us in terms of all the regulations. I was constantly forgetting masks and, and things like that. But Ireland's an incredible, incredible place. But for me, 
And I apologize throughout this for my kind of niche and nerdy interests. In some ways, I make no apologies for that because I know what I need and what I need to watch in terms of current affairs. But if you haven't seen it, Clarkson's Farm on Prime, I think, is an absolutely incredible program. And again, it's sort of along the lines of transport and things that I do, which is why I found it so fascinating. But I think he's done such a service to farming and to make people aware. And he's, you know, he couldn't be further from someone I would normally follow or agree with but it was such a, a fascinating and, and really quite moving program in the end so i binged it and i just thought oh it's fabulous um but yeah clarkson's farm i uh, highly recommend oh that's good to hear well i'm a sad james bond fan so i have been watching a kind of bond spin-off where daniel craig gets to talk about what it was like being bond uh on apple tv and that has been keeping me very happy for the last few days <laughs> And um, I also have been more and more interestingly, I think for many people, been watching Bo Burnham on uh, Netflix, which is my new favourite comedian. So that's been that's been very exciting. The US comedian and really worth watching, and especially his long program on comedy. It's not even comedy in lockdown; it's a lockdown piece of work, but it's remarkable. I recommend that. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much for having me. To Justin Quirk. Thank you for having me, Ross. And to our special guest, Tom Reddy. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week and the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Remember, if you liked this podcast, why not forward it to three friends? It all helps spread the word. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, time for some shouts to our latest Patreon backers. It's a hello and a big thank you from me to Andrew Johnston, Douglin and Nigel Hewitt. It's a big thanks for your support from me to Chris Pidcock, Juhar Nismi, and Jeff Lay. And finally, many thanks from me to Ned Palmer. I actually know Ned, he's an expert on cheese. Rob Knight and Rachel Standing. Thanks very much. See you next week. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Aisha Hazarika and Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.